afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Rob Port here on WDAY, 701-293-9000, is your toll-free number. We've got a lot of topics to hit today. In a moment, going to be talking with an attorney from the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education. They're a, a wonderful group that does a lot of work on speech issues on campus, due process issues on campus. We're going to talk about the University of Minnesota's uh, Gophers football team uh, saying that they were they were talking about boycotting a bowl game. I guess they backed down from that, but they were calling for due process for some of their roommates, or excuse me, not roommates, teammates. And I'm going to talk with Samantha about what exactly it was they uh, they were talking about. Also uh, going to talk a little bit about the Electoral College. Uh, North Dakota's electors are casting their votes uh, for Donald Trump, I'm presuming, uh, here in a few moments. That's happening, of course, around the country today. Uh, also going to talk a little bit about vaccinations. Robin Hubner had a uh, just a, a really good article about North Dakota's vaccination rates uh, over the weekend. And um, North Dakota has some of the lowest vaccination rates in the nation. I don't think that's a good thing, but we'll talk more about that later in the program. Right now, I want to go to uh, Samantha Harris, who has been waiting uh, patiently. Samantha, thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me. When the University of Minnesota football team says they want due process for their teammates, what are they talking about? Explain this issue. Well, they have not specified what precisely um, they mean in the case of these particular students. But generally speaking, nationwide, um, campus judiciaries are routinely uh, adjudicating cases of sexual misconduct with very little due process. Um, so the students at Minnesota seemed very surprised to learn that um, their teammates had been suspended um, under university policies for conduct that didn't constitute a crime, um, because obviously, you know, we know in this case that the police had investigated and did not charge the students with any crime. Um, now, to people who have been following this um, situation on campus as it has evolved over the last five years, that's unfortunately not surprising, um, because we know that um, the Office for Civil Rights, um, which is the agency of the Department of Education that oversees um, Title IX implementation on campus and all of the all of universities' obligation to address sexual misconduct on campus falls under their Title IX obligation um, to refrain from sex discrimination. So, um, in a 2011 Dear Colleague letter, the Office for Civil Rights required universities that receive federal funding, which is virtually all of them, to use a preponderance of the evidence standard, um, which is uh, more likely than not, or about 50%, 50.01% proof, um, to determine whether or not sexual misconduct had occurred on campus. Um, so it's not surprising that um, using that low standard of proof that students would be found responsible for sexual misconduct on campus, even in settings where they may not be found criminally responsible. So, so essentially what we have here is the, the colleges have, have set up uh, a way of, of a system of, of adjudicating these situations that are separate from the criminal justice system and have a lower burden of evidence. And, and I think that sets up a situation for, for many people where, you know, in, in, in the instance of the, these athletes, and here in North Dakota we had a case back in 2011, which I know your organization was involved with, a student by the name of Caleb Warner at the University of North yep. Dakota was expelled from the university uh, after being accused of sexual assault, or I, I forget the specific crime, but it was sexual assault. Uh, but uh, during the investigation, 
not only did the police not find the accusations made by the alleged victim to be credible, but they actually filed charges against her for filing a false police report. But but yet, even despite right. that, the university refused to overturn that. So that is sort of the situation that a lot of these students are operating in. And, and I think a lot of people have a question of saying, well, if, if, if we don't have enough evidence to find them guilty in a court of law, is it appropriate? And, and again, we're talking about, I mean, these athletes, I mean, they're playing for, for a very well-known sports program. They're, they're public figures in a way. And the university is is arriving at a conclusion about their guilt for for the purposes of 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 treating them, you know, you know, suspending them. That you know is 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 going to reflect on on their reputations. Is it problematic to have that lower burden of proof? Yes, and I think that you've hit on one of the real problems, which is, I mean, look, universities always have had and are they're entitled to have standards of conduct for on-campus behavior that, that are different from the laws of society. But the problem is that when you use terms like sexual misconduct and sexual assault that have, you know, to the, to the listener, um, criminal connotations, the reputational harm of found be, being found responsible for one of these offenses is very high. Um, and so, you know, you have very high stakes, and yet you have students being found responsible with little to no due process. And that sets up, um, you know, a, a very difficult situation for these students. Here in, here in North Dakota, we passed legislation that uh, allows students uh, accused of, of certain types of crimes, I, I think suspension or expulsion level um, offenses, guarantees them a, a, a level of, of access to, to legal counsel. Um, and that was a very big step. Uh, I know the lawmakers had to fight the universities on it. Um, does that exist in Minnesota? I mean, these students, when they were going through this process in Minnesota, do you know, did they have access to legal counsel or how did that? Because I think that's another part problem with this is when we think of, of, of the campuses adjudicating this, we think of the criminal justice system where you're afforded not just beyond a reasonable doubt that that evidentiary standard, but also access to legal counsel, a right to confront your accuser. Do we know if those things existed here in Minnesota? Right. We don't know exactly what process they were subjected to, um, but I do know that, you know, North Carolina and North Dakota are the only two states I know of that have what you're referring to as right to counsel legislation. Um, a lot of universities will allow students to be accompanied to proceedings by an advisor, sometimes even an attorney, but typically these advisors are not allowed to participate. Um, and so, you know, in many instances, you have students um, essentially defending themselves against very serious charges um, without um, you know, representation. Uh, so, you know, these right to counsel bills, which allow students at their own expense, and this goes for, you know, this is both parties. This is accused students and accusers, because, you know, as you can imagine, it's difficult for um, students who are accusing someone of serious wrongdoing also to have to go in there unrepresented. Um, so it allows both parties the ability to not only be accompanied by an attorney, but to actually have the active participation of an attorney. And universities typically are resistant to this because they don't want their campus judiciaries to be turned into, uh, you know, full-scale courtrooms. But the problem is they're adjudicating things that we commonly think of as crimes. Um, and, you know, the more serious the, the accusation and the more serious the, the penalty and the harm to reputation, the more robust the procedures need to be for finding someone responsible. 701-293-9000 if you want to join the program. 888-970-9329. have a few minutes left with Samantha Harris from the Foundation for Individual Rights in education. And, and by the way, I, I highly recommend follow their social media, follow their website. 
they track stories like this and also speech issues from all over the country. Uh, well worth your time. It, it seems to me that, that there is a, a, a fundamental, because what we're talking about, what you just said, the universities don't want these tribunals, I guess, for, for lack of a, a better term. They don't want them turned into a, another criminal justice system. But isn't that sort of what the Obama administration charged them with when they sent out that letter and said, you need to start adjudicating this? I mean, it, it's almost like, like they want us to set up a separate court system but yet not have all the protections in place that exist in the criminal justice system. So it, it's almost like they, they want to be able to have the authority to adjudicate these issues, but not necessarily afford everybody the rights that that are typically protected in that sort of a process. I mean, it's it, it seems like you can't. I, I don't want them to duplicate the court system on campus either. I would rather them just move these criminal cases to the actual criminal justice system, as imperfect as it can be sometimes, rather than trying to do this on on campus. Yes, and I think, you know, you've hit on a very important point, which is, you know, people who advocate for um, these on-campus adjudications will say that the criminal justice system is notoriously bad um, at adjudicating these cases. But that doesn't mean that, you know, we need to double down and create yet another broken system. I mean, if people are concerned about the criminal justice system and how it handles cases of sexual assault, then I think a better focus would be on, uh, you know, improving the criminal justice system because, you know, the criminal justice system has all kinds of powers, subpoena power, um, you know, the power to have witnesses testify under oath, um, the ability to collect and store forensic evidence, all of these things that, you know, universities just don't have. Um, and so, you know, particularly as more and more states and athletic conferences move towards requiring, for example, transcript notations on the transcripts of people who've been found responsible for these offenses, you know, the more difficult it becomes to justify having, as you say, this parallel system where students are adjudicated, um, you know, responsible for, for things that carry with them, as they should, a serious stigma, but without the benefits of the protections, the procedural protections that they would have in a court of law. One, one defense I, I heard of the University of Minnesota in this is that they were saying they weren't convicted of a crime. This is the school upholding its code of, code of conduct. And, and you alluded to this. And, and my rebuttal to this, and I guess you can tell me if I'm wrong, because I'm not a legal expert. I'm not an attorney. But I have a problem where, you know, our, our, our criminal justice system is supposed to be based on the notion that I am innocent until you prove me guilty. And what we're saying by having this separate adjudication of, of crimes is that these colleges, and, and we're not talking about private institutions either. The University of Minnesota is the government. I mean, that's a government institution. A government institution can treat me as if I am guilty without having to prove crimes beyond a reasonable doubt. That seems hugely problematic to me. Well, and, you know, that's very interesting because one of the things that we do know um, from the redacted version of the, uh, you know, University of Minnesota's investigative report that came out is that the University of Minnesota used what's called an affirmative consent standard um, to adjudicate the claims of sexual misconduct. And an affirmative consent standard, essentially, sort of known as yes means yes, under a traditional notion of consent, right? The default presumption is that sex was consensual unless there is evidence presented that the sex was non-consensual. With affirmative consent, it's sort of the opposite. You know, the default presumption is that sex was non-consensual and there has 
has to be affirmative evidence um, that, uh, you know, the person or persons consented to sexual activity. Um, and in the adjudicatory setting, the effect of this is really to shift the burden of proof um, to the person being accused to come forward with evidence of consent. Um, and, you know, as one court has said, it's very difficult to come forward with that kind of proof, particularly yeah. um, in a setting where there are often no witnesses. That may not have been the case in this particular situation, but oftentimes, you know, sexual encounters have no witnesses beyond the two people in the room. And so if one person effectively has to prove that the other consented um, in order to uh, be found not responsible, then you really are essentially uh, placing the burden of proof on the accused uh, person or persons to prove themselves innocent. Samantha, last question. How do, how do we get to a point where we get away from this system? I mean, is this something the Trump administration could unroll? I, I, I mean, it's, it, I understand that it was all sort of began with the Obama administration and their dear, dear colleague letter. Does Congress need to act? Does the new president need to, to, to rescind this, if you will? I, I don't I have no idea where President-elect Trump stands on this issue. But, I mean, is this something that, that can be undone easily or, or are we just sort of stuck with this going forward? It can be undone. Thankfully, the preponderance of the evidence standard was not codified into legislation. Um, you know, it was issued uh, as guidance by the Department of Education. Um, you know, they have treated it as a mandate, and schools have certainly treated it as a mandate because they're not willing to risk losing their federal funding. Um, but the reality is that it was issued in a, in a document that could be, um, you know, over overwritten essentially by new guidance from the department. So it would not actually take uh, legislative action to change that. Last question, uh, a reader via Twitter asks, don't the accusers have advocates advising them? And if so, doesn't that put the accused as a, at a disadvantage? And I, I think that was to your point about you know the, the right to counsel law uh, being for both the accused and the accuser. But often the accuser is supported, at least in my experience, they have advocates and other like that who are present. Can you describe that a little bit more for us? Well, I don't know that that's always the case. I mean, typically, um, you know, both parties are entitled to an advisor, and typically what we see is those advisors are not allowed to participate. I don't know precisely what, what the situation was at the University of Minnesota. Okay. Um, but, you know, I, I think the issue is less that, uh, you know, we certainly there are cases where there's some sort of gross disparity in who's representing the accuser versus the accused, or that the accuser essentially has a university, um, you know, representing him or her while the accused student is left to represent himself. Um, but more often, we, we see that both parties are allowed advisors. It's just that those advisors are not allowed to meaningfully participate. Samantha, thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. That's Samantha Harris, uh, once again, from the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. FIRE is their acronym. I would find them on the Internet and follow them. It's worth your time. 701-293-9000, We'll be right back. Don't go away. Yes, you know my baby, but she didn't know just where I was. I'm checking up. Welcome back, Rob Port, here on WDAY, 701 293 9329 uh, North Dakota's electors have uh, cast their votes in the electoral college race, and uh, all three of them uh, went to Donald Trump. So that's that. 
so far, I saw last I saw, I think Trump was some 80 electoral college votes away from the 270 needed. And uh, so far, there were no faithless uh, electors. There were protests in North Dakota today. Uh, or I, I guess what they were describing as a vigil. I, I tried to get uh, one of the organizers of the vigil on this show today. He didn't have time during uh, my broadcast time because obviously they were voting while I was on air. But um, uh, he is going to be actually on the Jay Thomas show coming up at 3 o'clock, so stay tuned for that. And, of course, I'll be on the Jay Thomas show at 2 as well uh, for a little while for Jay and uh, Jay and mine's usual Monday chat. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the Electoral College because there's there's obviously, due to the results of the election, there's been a lot of people um, upset about it. And I've, I've got some points to make. It, it, it's interesting to me that the people who are arguing that, you know, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. And so they're upset because the Electoral College gave Donald Trump the victory are asking our electors here in North Dakota to cast their votes against the popular vote in North Dakota, right? I mean, that's that's what they're doing is they're saying, well, you know, we should we should we should embrace the popular vote nationally by ignoring the popular vote in North Dakota, which seems a little hypocritical to me. Um, Two forty to one fifteen for Trump. Uh, no defections at all so far. So Trump, 30 votes away from uh, having to be official in the Electoral College. Um, I don't see any. I don't see any chance at all that he's going to ultimately um, that he's going to ultimately change that or, or, or have a problem there. But I, I don't know. I, I think it's a little strange that the left is doing this with the Electoral College stuff. It doesn't make any sense to me. But we'll talk about that a little bit more in the next segment. 701-293-9000, We'll be back right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Port, WDAY, 701-293-9000. You want to join the program, 888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. Uh, we have... We have uh, an email here uh, regarding our uh, our topic earlier. We were talking a little bit about due process on campus and the University of Minnesota football team um, threatening to boycott a bowl game, although they've they've backed off from that now. Uh, Jay emails, you don't need to be found guilty of minor in possession or any form of underage drinking crime uh, to have to sit, sit for six weeks in a high school sport. Uh, the bowl should not take them, and they had an out as soon as the boycott started. Um. Here, here's the problem, though. I don't, I, I don't know how because we're not talking about a misdemeanor, right? And it would be one thing if, if the university was just saying that they are, you know, the, the the students violated the the code of conduct or something like that, or or the coaches benched them because they violated the the code of conduct. That would be one thing. The problem is, is that the university has set themselves up, literally set themselves up as adjudicating serious crimes, right? I mean, felonious level crimes. And and they're arriving at the conclusion that these players are guilty of those crimes and thus worthy of punishment by the school based on evidence that was not sufficient even to bring charges in the criminal justice system. Now, I realize there's, there's other evidence out in this case in Minnesota 
of the players behaving in a way that they should probably be embarrassed about. I, I think maybe the evidence doesn't necessarily lead us to conclude that they were guilty of a crime. And that's the problem is that the university is not, I mean, they're, they're literally as, as Samantha, our guest said, they're not saying they're necessarily guilty of a, of a violation of the student conduct. They're adjudicating sexual assault. Right? When you say sexual assault, that is a crime. Universities should not be in the business of adjudicating crimes. Period. Full stop. Leave that to the criminal justice system. But yet, that's what the Obama administration has them doing with their guidance that they issued in 2011, which has resulted in quite a few injustices across the country, including one at the University of North Dakota. And it's, you know, with, with the Caleb Warner case. Uh, it, it won't get as much attention from President Obama's critics as some of the other stuff that he's done. But one of the great injustices, if this if this is allowed to stand going forward, you know, one of the great injustices he's done during his time in office is undermining due process rights for college students. 701-293-9000, Um Electoral College, like I said, uh, all three of North Dakota's electoral votes uh, have been cast for Donald Trump. It looks like he's about 30 votes away from getting uh, all the Electoral College votes he needs uh, to officially uh, secure the presidency. Uh, although, you know, at this point, Hillary Clinton's conceded. Barack Obama's begun the transition. I mean, this is the, the, the people thinking that they were going to overturn the election, uh, you know, by, by getting Electoral College voters to 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 vote against the way their states voted is is a little silly and and a little hypocritical i mean they're they're basically saying uphold the national popular vote by overturning the state-based popular vote um it doesn't make sense and and there's there's a couple of things to keep in mind about this for one i mean everybody talks about and i i think even i said it this way earlier in the show that hillary clinton won the popular vote and she really didn't win it. She got 48% of the, the national vote. She didn't get a majority either. You know, Donald Trump got 1.9% of the vote less than she did. Uh, and he won in the Electoral College. And this has only happened five other times in history. Uh, and only one of those times did the person who won the national popular vote but lost the Electoral College vote. And only one of those instances did that person get more than 50% of the vote. So every other time where the Electoral College outcome and the national popular vote outcome have differed, every other time but one, neither of the candidates got a majority at the national level. And I, I, I think that's I think that's important to keep in mind. I, I think the other thing that's important to keep in mind is that the Electoral College protects our country from basically being being governed by people who live in a very small portion of the country. I mean, the, the Electoral College was was essentially created to insert geographical diversity into election results. And, you know, I think that's very important. If you look at the map of where Hillary Clinton won, I mean, she basically won because of the large urban centers on the coast that, you know, largely are represented, dominated by 
the financial or entertainment or service industries, right? I mean, it's it's not a very diverse cross-section of, of the country. As a matter of fact, if we took California's votes out of the total, Donald Trump wins the popular vote. So I, I think what the Electoral College does is it ensures that whoever the president is represents a larger portion of the country geographically than maybe is, is, is reflected by the popular vote. Now, most of the time, the popular vote and, and the, the Electoral College vote agree, but, but sometimes, you know, particularly in times when our nation is as, you know, sharply divided as it is, polarized as it is, you know, it, it kicks in, and I, I think it, it serves its function. I mean, the electoral, the electoral college, I think, is very important for a state like North Dakota, um, because otherwise, without the electoral college, we would be stuck with every election being decided by you know a, a few population centers, um, and that's not how it should be. So I don't, I don't know. The, the people who are against the electoral college is is a little bit like the filibuster in, in the Senate which is to say that the people's position on it is usually dictated by whether or not you know they're uh, they're winning the argument or losing the argument um in the uh, in the, in the senate right it's always the minority party loves the filibuster and you know the majority party hates it right i mean the democrats were all about the filibuster under george w bush and then they got a senate majority under barack obama and all of a sudden, they wanted to get rid of the filibuster. As a matter of fact, they did get rid of the filibuster for judicial appointments. Uh, and now they're back to the minority again. And when they went back to the minority, they started filibustering bills left and right. So, you know, the same with the Electoral College. You know, back I remember back when, um, you know, Bill Clinton was, was failing to get, you know, Bill Clinton, I don't think, ever got a majority of the national popular vote. Although I don't think... The, the the electoral college was on his side as well, but I mean, listen, it, it's it's just one of those things. We're, we're we're after an election, people are upset. Their person didn't win the election, and so now they want everything changed so that I guess the next time we hold an election, they think maybe things will go their way. But that's not how it works. The electoral college, I think, is serves a very important function in our country, and uh, I'm glad we have it. And I'm glad North Dakota's uh, electors stayed true to, to the way North Dakotans voted. That's the way it should be. And, um, you know, like Donald Trump or hate him, uh, he won the election fair and square, and he's going to be the president. And uh, I hope he's a good one. More to come straight ahead, 701-293-9000, is a toll-free number. You can email me, talk at WDAWA.com. We'll be back. Don't go away. Welcome back, Rob Port here on WDAY, 701-293-9000, is a toll-free number. Email talk at WDAY.com. I, you know, I think I'm going to talk about this a little bit more on tomorrow's show, but I wanted to hit on it today. Robin Hubner had a, a really great article in, you know, the Fargo Forum, Grand Forks Herald, uh, in, in the newspapers yesterday. A really great article about vaccinations in, in North Dakota. And North Dakota's rate rate of vaccination since 2000, which is when the legislature uh, passed uh, legislation basically allowing uh, people to 
really, you know, reject vaccinations for themselves, their children for any reason at all. It's basically a a religious slash conscience, um, uh, basically exemption and they can invoke it. I mean, you don't have to prove anything. You could just say, I don't, I don't want this because it's against my conscience or whatever. And you don't have to be vaccinated since that time. Uh, North Dakota had uh, a 95% kindergarten immunization rate uh, in 2014-2015. That number was 89%, uh, according to Dr. Paul Carson, professor of public health at North Dakota State University and director of infection prevention and control at Sanford. He says that puts us among the five lowest states in the United States. And I, and I don't think that's anything to be proud of, North Dakota. Um it's unfortunate, I, and it's it's interesting to me because we're hearing a lot about fake news in the national media, and, and supposedly, you know, that's that's another excuse people have for why Donald Trump won the election. I think it's overblown. I think it's a scapegoat for people who don't want to admit that they nominated a a really terrible candidate, and that the Democratic Party has has become a has become the representatives of a very narrow section of, of the country, at least geographically speaking. Um, but beyond that, you know, the, the, the fake news thing, it's, it's interesting to me because people opting out of vaccinations are, are really falling. I, I, I think it's you want to talk about fake news impacting the election. I'm not sure it did. I think fake news is definitely impacting public health. In that you have, you know, celebrities and, you know, these these documentaries, which are factually challenged at times, I would say, promoting this idea that vaccinations are somehow not good for you or that they're part of some drug company conspiracy or that they're part of the government or whatever. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's elements of that. You know, I'm sure I'm sure the people who make vaccinations love the idea that states have a mandate for them. Right. I mean, there's no getting around it. Uh, and I and I cannot even understand distrust in government. I mean, I'm a conservative. I don't necessarily trust government. And I don't I don't know that I could ever bring myself to support a law that would force putting needles in people's arms if they don't want them there. Right. So I I, I get the mistrust to a point. But the efficacy of vaccination as as a way to control communicable disease is undisputed in my mind, you know, and, and, and a lot of this stuff being put out that it's connected to autism and everything else is just bunk. And it, 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 it always shocks me whenever this issue comes up, how just absolutely militant some people are in, in their beliefs on this. But I want to talk about this a little bit more tomorrow. Uh, coming up with the Jay Thomas show, I'll be on starting here at two o'clock. Uh, also at three, Jay will have on. Uh, one of the people who are protesting the Electoral College uh, votes here in, in North Dakota today. That's coming up at 3. You can catch me right here, 1 to 2 p.m., Monday through Friday on WDAY, or 24 hours a day, seven days a week at sayanythingblog.com. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again.